Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP, where we discuss trends in architectural and interior design and the competing priorities or tensions that arise from integrating new ideas into existing organizations, enterprises, and institutions. On today's episode, we offer part two of a continued discussion regarding trends and tensions in retail design with Andrew McQuoken and Declan McCormick, both of BHDP. If you enjoy what you hear, we encourage you, as always, to rate, subscribe, and give us a review. We also invite your suggestions of other architectural and interior design-related topics. I am your host, Brian Trainer, a workplace strategist for BHDP. Let's get started. Talk a little bit about mass customization. That was something that I brought and how that's impacted retail, because it seems like an oxymoron with um, mass customization, but it seems to have had an impact on the way people shop nowadays. You don't just have to grab the thing on the shelf. You can kind of design your own. And the one that popped in my mind, I love my Chuck Taylors, my Converse Chuck Taylors. You can order those online in any color configuration with shoelaces and gutters and all that stuff. Has that been as big a deal as they're saying, or is this another one of those things where, it, the, like the retail apocalypse, where it's actually a really small percentage of the impact of the industry? Well, they, you know? they uh, talked about, what, 15 years ago, talking about the millennials yeah, and how the millennials wanted to personalize things. So, was, you know, they came up with a brand called Zion in the car industry, and you can go online and you can customize this thing any way you wanted, right? Because this is what the millennials were looking for, right? The individuality. You know, we call it, you know, the personal choice factor, which is a really big deal now. But when you go back and look at the success of that model, did it really have enough of a market to make that happen? Were there enough millennials that wanted to define themselves with all this pure customization? You know, so even now when you talk about the shoe brands and be able to go online and do that, there's a whole other level of experience that people are forgetting. They want a personal connection. Their whole lives now are digital and they're, they're, they're losing meaning and what it means to be a citizen and part of a community. So they're hungry for the personal connection. So yeah, I can go online and buy it, but wouldn't it be great at minimum just to be able to go pick it up in the store and meet the other people who are just like me? Interesting, the personalization comment again, Andrew. I, I like that because um, when we talked about the experience in the store, um, Brian was asking, you know, what's, what's, what's the trend, what's changing there? And I think to your point, it's, Shoppers, especially millennials, they want to feel that this is a store that's almost catered for them, designed for them. Now, we all know that isn't the case entirely, but, but we do know the, the DNA of, of the millennial, and we think that we, we can find a common theme that works for a lot of them. But um, if, you look, if you just consider you know, all the buzzwords today in retail design, experiential, immersive, intuitive, blah, 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 it goes on. Now, that's all well and good, but you can create an environment that that carries that 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 it you know scores on all those three points, and and you get A pluses for all of those. But that's just that's just an environment. The environment has got to be the right environment for the particular shopper and the brand shoppers. So what we're doing is that we're we're again I mentioned going back upstream earlier. We're, we're doing that so we can really understand who their shoppers, who our clients' shoppers are, and what makes them different. And then, then we look at how we can create an environment that's adaptive, but it's also, it feels personalized because we're, we're understanding the shopper and what they do in the environment, and then we're catering for that. 
and we're not trying to just get these experiential, amazing Taj Mahals that we're looking to win, you know, um, awards for. So let, let me talk about my daughter, right? Uh, in college, so we'll go to a restaurant. Let's say we go to Cheesecake Factory. I hand my daughter the menu. Analysis paralysis. She knows what she likes and doesn't like. She's very opinionated about who she is as an individual. But when you put all the customization options in front of her, she doesn't know what to do. She doesn't want to make a mistake. You know, she'll, she'll know it when she sees it. So I think there's a huge value still in bringing a point of view as a retailer that says, you know what, here are the top five options that customers like, but here's the two options we recommend that we think are on trend or the next available trend. So you'll be, you'll, be, you'll be with it. You'll be right up to date on where you need to be from a fashion standpoint. And it can still represent who you are as an individual. So don't, don't let the data and the choices dictate and the consumer drive what the choices are. There's a huge value for a retailer who knows the business to be able to put a point of view out in front of them. You know, so if you put the same kind of thing of bespoke for Chanel or Nike or Neiman Marcus, they need to bring their point of view about who they are and what it means to be part of their culture and their brand to those solutions. So I think there's still a lot of flexibility in there for, for consumers who, who want you to tell them what it could be for them and not just have them have analysis paralysis with a million different choices. I just need a pair of shoes. Please I just <laughs> need parachutes, yes. <laughs> Please don't make this too complicated. I can understand that. But, you know, here's our top sellers, right? Used to do the music, right? When you go into all these choices for music, here's the top things that are selling, and here's the new arrivals that we think we want to recommend to you because our buyers found some really cool albums out there. What, why, why are we losing track of what was great retail? This is common sense stuff that somehow because we're relying so much on data to drive decision-making now, we've lost sense of what it means to be a retailer. Interesting. So I wanted to ask, because you guys have brought up generational issues a couple of times, one of the things that I read about was it says the baby boomers are going to, um, when it comes to luxury brands, the, the baby boomer generation is going to be declining in their spending. And by 2025, they were saying millennials and Gen Z are going to increase and they'll be the majority of the market. What I want to know is in most of these, you alluded to it a little, but not, or I think Declan did. Um, why does Generation X, which is mine, so I have a personal stake in this, seem to get skipped over in most of these analytics? Do they just not buy things like everybody else? Like, what, what's wrong with me? Why, why am I not important to well, this data? Generation <laughs> X is smaller. Yeah? And back in the 80s, we were chasing Generation X, my Generation 2 as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and what they found out about us was really interesting. Again, th when technology came along, we wanted to be the cool piece, uh, but we weren't brand loyal at all. <laughs> we had no allegiance to brands. And that's not good if you're a retailer. You're trying to create a sense of brand loyalty, not even for the brands you represent, but for you as a brand overall. So it was really interesting to say that when millennials came along, they saw the potential as being bigger than, you know, than the boomers at a certain point. That's where they invested. And that's what they've been talking now for about 10, 15 years now. It's all about the millennial. Now, some are smart and they're talking about Gen Z, you know, because they're, they're dynamically different. But, you know, we got the short end of the stick for, for Generation <laughs> X because there's less of us. It's a math problem. Uh, see, I, I feel slightly better about that answer, but I'm still a little bitter. I'm just saying. So that's, to that point, Brian, you're, you're right. Um, 
that's the, that generation, their spending power will reduce over the next several years. Um, they're also, a lot of them are moving back into the urban environment. So they're leaving suburbia, heading downtown. And they're, what's interesting is the baby boomers, I think, were initially not well understood. And people thought that they shop physical stores 100%, they would never touch digital. But turns out they're shopping as much, if not more, on their f- devices than millennials today. Millennials would do their research on a device and then they'd go to the physical store for that one-on-one experience. Those baby boomers, for some reason, we, uh, we've adapted pretty well. Oh, you've adapted to Prime. Amazon Prime. That's yep. right. Yes. Right. You're the yeah. key customer for Amazon Prime. You have mm-hmm. the buying power. Yeah. And so that's where a lot of the, the effort goes from Amazon to say, you know, let's, let's, let's ride this generation till we all die off. <laughs> or your generation. <laughs> Mercy. <laughs> well, that's not, so you're just trying to outlast him now. That's not very nice. Andrew, no. <laughs> one of those things, though, you talk about Amazon Prime. Um, in one of those articles, too, I read that they had said in 2018, the Amazon Prime membership had plateaued. Um, that it wasn't increasing like it had been before. But they also talked about Apple. When you talked about people putting, you know, doing, going back to the old retail instinct, I think Apple was one of those examples of nobody asked for an iPod, you know, but it happened and it blew up, right? The, people didn't know what it was they wanted, and that was one of those retailers that did it. What They're was, saying what that was, Apple. What was Henry Ford's quote? Yeah, if, if you. If I'd listened to my customer, I would have designed a faster horse. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But the idea too is that um, what is, what are the innovations that are coming out of them now? Because the, they were saying in 2018, Apple kind of plateaued because it hadn't come up with anything new or innovative in a while. Um, is this just another one of those steps or a wave, or is this a thi- I, the reason I bring this up is because we're we're working with a class at UC, and we're talking about the future of work, and you know what's going to happen when AI and all these other things take away some of the common tasks. What's work going to look like? And one of the students said she predicted that within fifty years, companies like P and G wouldn't exist anymore. And I thought, well, that's a grandiose statement uh, because she was convinced that the smaller ones would come in, but. So I wouldn't need soap or toothpaste, is what you're saying? Or they would be broken down into smaller companies. I don't know. I, uh, yeah, well, that, again, but that's that's a business decision based on the value of the brands. Right. I don't know what that means for work. Uh, I, something that's out there. Think about this this younger generation. What do they spend the most time doing? If you're talking about my son, it's uh, playing video games. Playing video games. Yeah. <laughs> the next big trend we believe that's going to come in for retail has a lot to do with gamification. Okay. All right. Everybody's chasing experience. There's nothing more exciting to these kids than putting VR on or whatever it is, or a joy, you know, about to say joystick, yeah. <laughs> a controller in their hand, <laughs> the and playing paddle. video games. The um, the emotional rush and the cadence of the storytelling, that's where they live their lives, right? So when you think about think about retailing and where it's going from an experiential standpoint, it's going to start to tap into some of the gamification that's out there. Look at the trend for Pokemon Go. It was a fad. But every generation was playing it. It was it was so exciting. It was addictive. I mean, the people who are running online, they know how to make you know their social platforms addictive. Yes. So retailers really haven't caught up to that yet. Once they start to figure out how to make it, you know, this whole idea of surprise and delight, you know, the unanticipated, and maybe only twenty percent or thirty percent of the time something interesting happens. That's what forces people to get more involved and more engaged. So think about a retail space where 30% of it is unpredictable, right? And then it can change and adapt to you personally. And you don't know necessarily what it's going to be. 
and that's going to help you, you know, and release endorphins from the delight of it all. And you're going to fall in love with the brands all over again because they figured out how to take the gamification storytelling uh-huh. and wrap it into a retail space. So does that exist now? Is that something that you can experience, like the gamification of a retail space? Is there an example of that already happening? or? Because um, I, I want to go there. You know, I'm <laughs> the the new Nike area, the, the new Nike towns that are being built. There, there is a sense of gamification for some of these spaces. Yeah. There's things that you can experience that adapt. You can even watch other people and how it adapts to them. Uh, so there's a piece of that within that experience that can change and adapt over time, or you know, adapt to you over time. Uh, I think the thing that's causing a lot of harm right now is the is you know stopping a lot of it is because the investment. You know, we t- keep talking about these plateaus. So, you know, think of the amount of money in technology that Nike had to invest to create this space, right? But if you need to keep up and you need to keep adapting, this thing has to be viable for the next 10 years for the amount of money that's being spent into it. So, you know, what can we do to leverage more sensory perceptions and that are low cost that allow retailers to, to do adapt, whether it's color and color changing, whether it's sound and music, which is under leverage, whether it's smell, and again, think of Abercrombie and Fitch and what they've done for years with just a smell. Um, so what can you do to kind of leverage that as part of your brand experience and have it adapt and change over time? Interesting. And I think, um, Brian, too, I think innovation in retail today is just, is just a, another common word. It's just a given. It's no longer expected that we see innovation happening in, in cycles or, or in different time periods. It's constant. It's a constant state of innovation because the next retailer with the next big idea is going to get the big share of the pie and everybody's vying for that for that piece of, of real estate and so it's it's if you're not innovating you, you got to be thinking that there's a problem ahead sure you've you've taken a lot of notes over there Declan I didn't know if that was just <laughs> did, was there anything interesting on there that you that we These missed were notes for myself <laughs> no 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 that I, I'm glad you did I just yeah. wanted to make sure we'd captured all that this is interesting because at the beginning, there is a lot of um, news around retail that seems to just be a, uh, intended to activate your limbic system, right? Mm-hmm. You get people afraid or whatever when you talk about apocalypse. I know they do that with the weather. Every time the snow comes, it's the next snowpocalypse. Um, are, the impression that I get after talking to both of you that it's, it's not as bad as they make it out. Um, is that a fair assessment or am I looking for comfort too quickly. Well, again, been through these cycles seven right. times now in, in, in these 30 plus years. Uh, the Great Recession had one of the best recoveries for retail. You know, the market took off. Department stores invested in a lot of renovation work and redid their flagships in that, in that time. Interest rates were low. They could do the investment and learn from it. What happens now is this whole dynamic of how you leverage data and people are still trying to figure it out. There was a store that Kate Spade did called Kate Spade Saturday. And they invested a lot of technology, but when you actually read about what they did, they saw a technology that other retailers were using and said, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that <laughs> in my store. But they really didn't get down to understanding who their consumer was and what she was looking for and what could help assist in the sale. So they put all these bells and whistles into a space and within six months, they started closing all the stores they opened and they called it a test. Well, you didn't say it was a test when you opened it. So now you turn around and, and say, well, we gathered information. Well, what other information you gather? If you didn't have the right hypothesis about why you were doing what you were doing, how do you know that you have the right information to get to? So we turn around and we're gonna leverage data within a space. We're gonna make a hypothesis about what we think we can change in terms of planning design, know it to measure ahead of time, make those changes, 
and then go back and look at how those changes affected the behavior of people in space, align it to the sales data, so we know what things were actually working and not working, and then continually to adapt and change as we learn more about the space and what we need to do. Again, it's what the store manager used to do 50 years ago, when right. they would just walk the store every day yeah. and come up with ideas about how to improve things and test ideas. And I think, I think it's, I believe that it's the, it's the omni-channel is the key here. The, the retailers that can master both the brick and mortar and the e-tail and combine them to a, the best omni-channel experience out there will succeed. And by, by creating a seamless environment, whether it be on your iPhone, your iPad, and a physical store environment, I think that's where, that's where the rubber hits the road and where, where you succeed in both the brick and you succeed online. And examples of that be, you know, if I'm gonna shop on, on Target on my iPhone, I, this feels very personalized to me. It's just me shopping and I'm selecting and deselecting. And it's a very, it's a very, very personalized process. And when I go to the store now, Target are recognizing that's the same thing and they, they understand their shopper. And, and, you know, as we get closer to, to melding those two environments, online and the physical, that's where people will succeed in the marketplace. I, I did see something interesting the other day that I hadn't seen, um, and I, I must confess, I was in a Walmart, and they had this big machine that looked like something out of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and the concept was you could order online and come into this big yeah. monstrous thing and pick up your order. Um, but I, I also see, you know, there's less and less cashiers. So how much of the human are we taking out of the retail experience? And is there going to be a point where that's too much? So you know. when Amazon created the Amazon Go concept, a little convenience store concept, you know, it was theorized that part of the, part of the, the issue was, you know, that you're trying to reduce manpower by getting rid of, you know, checkout lanes. So I went to the one in Seattle last year. Uh, got in there, you have to get on an app to get into the space. There's, you know, turnstiles that block you from going in until you register your app, get in there, put your credit card on it, wow. and then it gives you access. And, you know, you pick up stuff, and as you're picking up, it can decide, and you know, with the cameras that are there, what you've picked up, what's in your cart per se, and then you just turn around and walk out. But what I did when I went there is, in this little tiny space that's no more than 700, 800 square feet, there were five employees. So it, for Amazon, <laughs> obviously this is more about understanding behavior and how people shop, how to leverage design and planning to help accommodate that. It has more to do with them gathering more information they can't get in the two-dimensional world of somebody touching their keypad and moving a mouse. This is understanding how people react in space. What I also looked for, by the way, was facial recognition cameras. I couldn't find a single camera looking at the facial expressions of the individuals in the space. So they're just gathering data movement, what people pick up, what they put down. If it wasn't, if bricks and mortar wasn't viable for the future, why are these online retailers <laughs> opening up bricks and mortar's locations? There's a whole nother level dimension. So I think the true retailers who adapt to online are better situated to understand what it means to be a retailer and how to connect with your consumer than online retailers, you know, jumping into bricks and mortar, but having to do this, you know, learning curve that some of these companies have 50 years worth of learnings. And so they're much better at understanding how to predict what merchandise they should buy in the next quarter. So those five people at Amazon, they're not necessarily cashiers. What are they? Are they, they just uh, multi, are they restocking? They are yeah. stocking. Yeah. Right. Um, 
one person certainly looked like they were there to help you if you had any questions about how to use the store, give you some confidence yeah. around it. So, like um, a concierge. Yeah, nobody, that. you know, that was one of their roles, but it wasn't seem like a permanent position. Uh, and so, you know, I didn't see enough turnover to say that you need five people constantly stocking the store. So that was interesting as well. How so, long were you in there? Um, about 15 minutes. 15 minutes. So. Yeah. So you, you didn't sit for two hours to see because they probably you think they would have shuttled you out if you remained. It's a too long. really small store, <laughs> right? I, I bought a diet uh, a diet raspberry snapple, so I wow. had to test the system. But again, I just spent my time just watching the people for fifteen minutes and how the employees engaged with the space and how the shoppers engaged with the space. So that's the information they're tracking and trying to gather is how people engage the products. Do you think decisions. one of the intentions of that is to sell that data to other retailers so that they can streamline their checkout experience too? Do you think Amazon may sell that to Target for their stores? Well, or? I'm pretty sure online yeah. they do already. You yeah. know, if you're a, a second party or third party, there's data that you can get from Amazon about how people shop. There's other ones that are out there. There's a there's one out there that Target owns that I know that some retailers actually bought into their online system. Uh, you know, what's interesting about Amazon is the technology they use to track people. Will that ever be for sale? Oh, I hope not. Oh. So, hope mine isn't. Yeah, I don't want people. I don't even have a Kroger card. I'm worried they're gonna. I don't want them knowing I'm buying cat food and tall boys. But you know, it's, and uh, you don't have any cats. <laughs> what was the exactly. problem? Yeah. What, what, <laughs> what I thought was well well done. I thought their visual merchandising gets cut. No. I thought their visual merchandising at the Amazon Go and the product presentation actually was simple, easy to understand. The categories and the products that they brought. Obviously, they know what the top sellers are. The graphics and information was simple, clean, well read. There was a feeling or a point of view of how they want to represent the brand and the design. So I think they're getting some of the retail bricks and mortar ideas right. Um, and that's more of a worry if I'm a, a purely bricks and mortar retailer. And when they bought Whole Foods, again, which was, you know, almost for some retailers, the Pearl Harbor of retail. <laughs> yeah. You know, I had my phone ringing off the hook for three days with everybody trying to figure out what does it mean for them. That's all settled down now. But it did let the grocery world know, you know, that it's 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 something they need to deal with that they need Time to make to sure yeah. that they can't afford to lose all those customers and the way they're going to keep those customers or win customers over is by understanding how to be great retailers and deliver that that quotient of experience very interesting thank you for listening to trends and tensions presented by bhdp if you enjoyed what you heard please rate subscribe and give us a review we hope you will join us again as we continue to have constructive conversations on another episode of Trends and Tensions.